You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Now, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of interstate battery retail stores all over the United States. So whether you need a a new truck battery, which by the way, I've heard that they are some of the best in the automotive industry, right? A truck battery, a car battery. If you need batteries for something as simple as a remote control or a unique battery for a range finder or one of your children's toys, uh, Interstate Batteries not only has those batteries available, if they don't have them, they can order them for you, or if you need to find out more about a specific battery battery or the specs of a specific battery, stop into their retail store and talk with a battery specialist. These guys are very knowledgeable about what products they offer and what it is that you need for whatever battery you're looking for. So, Stop in to a local retail store or visit interstatebatteries.com to learn more about their company, the batteries that they offer, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So check out interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Welcome back to another Land and Legacy podcast, guys. I'm so happy you guys are uh, sharing your time with us this week. I bring on Frank Long Carriage, one of the consultants here with Land and Legacy, and um, we are chatting about regional differences in land management. Wow, what a big topic! What a wide-ranging topic! Uh, this is there is so many different uh, examples that we share and and touch on from rainfall to vegetations to fire intervals from quail to turkey from from mississippi and florida all the way up to iowa wisconsin it is a big podcast that has a lot of information in it but um but really goes into the principles of management and and, and the realization of research from one region about a given species maybe isn't applicable in that same exact manner in another region. So we're all managing the same animal, but the differences in climate, the differences in rainfall, differences of uh, exposure on a hillside, soil types, makes you have to adapt quite differently. So this podcast is going to be um, pretty eye-open, I think, and, and and make people kind of force themselves into an open-mind management style that um, will ultimately increase their just success of, of whatever they're trying to get out of the land. So we appreciate you guys listening um, this week to that, um, but be sure that you have checked out the online store, Shop Land and Legacy. TV because there are new hats. There are all the Stratton Seed blends for this fall up available online there for you to check out. But first, we need to stop and thank our partner, First Light, for being a part of this podcast and being a part of the supporting groups um, with Land and Legacy here. So I am currently wearing men's Kurgit pant 
have certainly fallen in love with these things. Um, a great work pant, great consulting pants. We're out traveling around, very, very lightweight um, and breathable, yet pretty dang waterproof. I shouldn't say waterproof, very water resistant. And um, man, they're just solid, solid pants. So um, there's a ton of great gear. It is certainly getting into that window, that time frame in which fall is coming fast. We're late July, if not into early August right now. And so we're months away um, or weeks away from a lot of adventures this fall happening. So if you guys need gear, go to firstlight.com and check it out. You'll love it. You'll love what you use, love what you see. Be sure to read the descriptions because there's very specialty pieces out there that they do offer for specific types of hunts or specific weather. So make sure you get the right pieces. Um, reward yourself. Go out there, firstlight.com. All right, well, I do have the man, the myth, the legend. Frank yeah. Longcarriage yeah. is on the podcast with us this week, and I'm excited. I'm always excited for our conversations, Frank, because I feel like um, – you know, either you've got something brewing in your brain or I've got something in mind. We chat about it for five minutes, jump on the phone call, and then, wham, there's a podcast um, that just kind of forms. So that's essentially what we're going to do this week is just you've got something that, that's been brewing, and uh, we're going to turn it over to you and just kind of let it happen. But h- how have things been out your way? They've been good. They've been good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I appreciate being on always. Um, things are going good. And of course my mind's always, always thinking about quail, yeah. um, always and upland game birds. Um, and so, you know, in thinking about it, this is a critical time. This is, this is where we are making our, our hunting population right now. This, right. Is, when the, this is the time when the hens are nesting, pulling off broods, brood survival is super critical. And a lot of that is dependent on precipitation, as we've talked about in past podcasts, and mm-hmm. the importance of, uh, depending on where you're at in the in the quail world, and we'll talk about that more. But in, in where we're at, you know, sort of in the range east of east of Kansas, rain can can be a detriment if sure. it comes at the wrong time of year. And and luckily, our um, our June and early July was pretty dry here yep. in this part of the world, which means that brood survival was probably going to be fairly good we've had some some of those you know blow up pop-up showers that you know dump a quarter to a, a half inch on a certain place and so sure as with with anything any anytime you get spotty rains like that you know you're going to have variable brood survival ac- across your landscape but overall and based on the number of reports that i'm getting of people seeing broods mm-hmm. I'm, I'm excited about that and uh, speaking of that um quick shout out to one of our landowners or our, our, con- yes. our a landowner in western kansas on, on which you and i did a consultant yep. um trip last january, january. he's yeah. reporting seeing lots of quail broods mm-hmm. in the places where he did the brood patches and and, and did the recommended management and so that's always exciting to hear yeah and if, if, i think we did a seeing results we did a podcast I believe on that trip too, or, or yep. on our way back. So if you guys want to go and listen to kind of what those recommendations were in great detail, um, what we were seeing as we were on site and then what was recommended um, and then now put into place, not, not probably completely, but uh, just from a quick, um, you know, spring into summer, he's experiencing great success. And, and that's the cool, cool thing about it, Frank. And that's why I love, managing open landscapes and and doing simple techniques right out of the get-go is because mm-hmm. you can experience and see changes very quickly and and that's exactly what he has been experiencing so um it, it's it's definitely good to get that feedback get those pictures and continue to just kind of help develop and work um you know remotely here but just through Text and conversation. That property is well on its way um, to being fine tuned from a from a a bird mecca, from yeah, what it seems yeah. like. Yeah, that was that was great. Great to get those updates and and sort of that sort of leads into kind of what what we wanted to talk about today and kind of 
looking at it in, fr from two subjects. One is how these, you know, bobwhite quail, and, and again, it's probably going to be bobwhite centric, but there'll mm -hmm. be some other game birds that we'll talk about. And a lot of this can be adapted to, to land management in general. Absolutely. Um, early successional management specifically, but you know, bobwhite uh, range from the East coast all the way to Eastern Colorado. So it, they've got a huge range. They, yep. they run from, you know, Southern Wisconsin down into Mexico. So they've got a huge latitudinal range too. And because of that, one can't expect that management for these critters is the same across the range. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's not, that's not right at all. So we have to, we have to one realize that, understand that we have to realize what the mechanisms are that are driving quail populations wherever we're at in the world. Yep. And then how to, how to specifically manage for that. And so, you know, one of the things that, that, that I wanted to talk about first is, is, you know, the mechanics of kind of what drive quail populations and Kyle hit on it in an earlier podcast with Adam, but, um, quail are largely driven by rainfall in, in much of the range, especially out West. Mm, so we're talking certainly. Western Kansas, Western Oklahoma, West Texas, um, in those more droughty landscapes with sandy soils or even even clay soils, mm -hmm. um, the the rainfall is really what's going to make or break their quail population. If they get average to above average rainfall, then they get a flush of early successional habitat, um, forbs, weeds on the landscape, and if the and if the properties haven't been overgrazed, then quail populations do really really well. They boom. They actually, you know. It, it, exceed you know what we would expect because brood survival is so high and nest success is so high because there's so much habitat on the landscape that there's just there's just so many places for these quail to hide so many nesting clumps and and predation rates are low mm -hmm. um now ex excess rainfall east of kansas you know is at the wrong time of the year is detrimental to quail so yeah you know, you can't really, you got to look at precipitation uh, differently depending on where you're at. Um, and, and even, even in, I'll give you an example of where that doesn't even tell the whole story. And in, in um, Georgia and Florida, particularly where they're doing a lot of quail work, you have sites there that, that see relatively the same precipitation. They're in the same region. So they, you know, they, they average precipitation that, that's relatively the same from site to site, but some sites are sandy soil sure. and some sites are, are heavy clay soil. And in the sandy soil areas, um, you can actually, they actually do a lot of brood habitat patches because there's, there's not as many forbs, there's not as much brood cover in those sandier soils. So they actually do a lot of brood habitat manipulation like doing ragweed plantings or, or other stuff to enhance the amount of forbs on the ground. Sure. Whereas on the sandier sites, they can get by with um, prescribed burning at proper times of the year. And they really have enough forbs that they don't really have to worry about brood planting. So even in a region that's, that's close by soil differences can make a difference in how they manage. So um, it's important to really, to really know the mechanisms that are driving populations in your area to, to really know how to manage and i think it's i think that's that's part of the fun i think in, in this management is figuring out the puzzle figuring out what drives your particular property what makes it tick and then knowing how to manage based on that well a hundred percent you had on you had on so many good points but but one of the biggest overall deals in what you've what you've been saying is there's no blanket statement that says this is going to yield x improvement in in across the the bob white's range and same thing can be said for likely wild turkey and same thing oh, yes. from a stress period standpoint can be said from a whitetail standpoint we so calm you know let, let's say the as as divided as the hunting community is or can be in some some certain mm -hmm. situations they're still so well connected and so like social media um group hunting groups clubs things like that like everybody talks about things that they're passionate about they share observation they share success stories and failures so like 
despite there being like, you know, different groups and categories, we're all still very well connected and, and do share a lot between each other. But when, when that happens, I think the, what, what often let's say is left out of that equation of, of sharing information is where they're located at in the country. Uh-huh. And that plays obviously f- taken from what you just said, a humongous, humongous difference and importance because you cannot apply what happens on a farm in Michigan and apply it to Georgia and expect the same results. That's right. And yep. you can't do the same thing from a quail world of West Texas and expect the same thing happen in the Piedmont of Virginia. Mm-hmm. It's you're, you're managing the same species. And I, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. And I, and I, it just, it just holds, I guess, a lot of weight is you have to manage around principles and, and based on those principles in your region, you're going to have to fluctuate your techniques to match that principle with your region. And, and I think that people just want to just take a success from West Texas or a success from Southern Iowa or a success from, you know, great turkey populations in Middle Tennessee and just say, well, there's uh, dairy farms and cattle farms and big timber there. So I'm just going to I want that here. It doesn't yeah. work like that. That's right. That's right. That, that's that's an excellent point <clears throat> when you mentioned principles and um if we, if we bring it back to the quail world, quail, um, the principal habitat that they need all across their range is they need early successional habitat and they need some shrubs and, and one form another scattered mm-hmm. throughout the landscape. If you've got some grass for scattered grass for nesting, lots of forbs for insect production and food, some bare ground for, for movability, mobility, and the shrubs, that's what quail need in principle, across their range. Sure. Now, how to achieve that in West Texas is quite different than how to achieve that, as you mentioned, in Virginia, yeah. right? Yeah. And the timing of manipulation in West Texas, if they do a prescribed burn for for forb production, they may not have to come back in woody cover control. They may not have to come back and burn that for another five or six years, probably at a minimum. Yeah. We can't get away with that in southern Missouri, right? right? Right. We have to burn things every other year or at a minimum every three years or maximum, I guess, every three years to achieve some level of early successional habitat and woody cover control. The principles are still the same. We're using the same techniques to achieve the the desired growth on the landscape or the desired results. But the mechanisms and the timing behind how we do that are quite different. And so it's important to know where you're at in the landscape. So if you're looking, you know, if you're in a lot of the great quail research is coming out of Georgia and Florida and in Texas. And a lot of that is certainly applicable to Southern Iowa. But Mm -hmm. if you're doing, if you're basing your management based on what they do in West Texas or what they do in Florida on your property in Southern Iowa, that may not work because timing is different, your soils are different, you're, you're certainly you're, the place in, in the world is different in terms of winter weather, that, that you've got to take that all into effect. The principles are the same, like you mentioned. That was a great point. But the dynamics behind that are quite different. Yeah, absolutely. I think, <clears throat> so like, there's some people out there who, who have a tough time of like wrapping their hand uh, head around like, let's say, a variable situation. Because they're, and I just, I guess, quite frankly, there's just not an equation that will say if you do x plus x, this will equal this. It's like if you have um, the number of of growing degree days, days between frosts, um, and you do and you um, add in um, amount of rainfall for your given area, this is when you should do 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 do. Like, no, you can't mm-hmm. even do that because every year that that rainfall is an average. Like you might not get that every single year. You might, you might be experiencing an extremely wet season. So that throws off this. And I think when, when we term ourselves as a land manager, we have to be in tune with the land. If there was just like this magic equation of like, Oh, this research said this in Texas, I'm going to apply it here and I'm going to get, 
you know, again, this same type of result, then we wouldn't be having a decrease in, in bobwhite quail populations. We wouldn't be seeing the, the, the things that we see to the extent if this all was just as like, I'm going to take this information, apply it here, and I'm going to be good. There's mm-hmm. just variances. And I think, again, as that, that term, we use that term land of manager, that means we have to be in tune with what's going on on your site, in your region, at any given time. Yes. I think I think Adam and Kyle just recently did the, the podcast on, you know, the hot and dry weather. Well, hot and dry yep. is extremely variable across whichever region you're at. You know, uh-huh. you could be used to hot and dry, and you're like, well, this is just a normal summer day. Or you could be up in uh, Wisconsin and be like, well, I, I, northern Wisconsin. I think southern Wisconsin gets less rain than we do here in southern Missouri, but just just generally speaking wherever you're at it it is there's no blanket statements let's say it's yeah. very very you know based on your region and what specifically your site needs to occur and you you even on a, the same property you can't manage let's say an old field stand in a bottomland as you manage an upland site for the old field management, it absolutely you, you have two different sites. You can't yep. apply the same stuff, and like the expression of the vegetation that comes back, even if you get the same rain, is going to be different between the two sites. But we just yeah. have to be so in tune with the land and what it's saying, what what the expression's going to be, with what we're given in that that year of the rain, late frost, early frost, all these yeah. things. Yeah, you know that's right, and that goes back to sort of that example I was I was given about in in Georgia, where you've got two different sites separated by a few miles, but one is sandy soil and one is heavy clay soil. Um, you know, even how they manage that with even within the same region uh-huh. is different, and and I think that's one of the cool things about about our jobs is that's one of the things that I enjoy when when I'm doing a a task or my job where it's cookie cutter or it's the same thing over and over. That's the most, you know, tedious stuff that I do, and I and I, I don't enjoy it. Right. But where we're, we're working with the variable, like where we're going to burn a piece of ground, uh, I'm excited to see how that's going to respond the next year. And maybe it responded great, or maybe it re- didn't respond well. Well, we got to figure out why it didn't respond well. Was it something with with rainfall after it? Was it the type of fire we did? Mm-hmm. Was it, you know, there's so many variables, and figuring that out is one of the cool things about what we do and, and and one of the things that I really enjoy is figuring out the dynamics behind what we are seeing because they they do vary and that's the cool thing about land management is is I guarantee you that you cannot predict the response that you're going to get you know you can go out and say I'm going to burn this woodland unit on March 30th and this is what I'm going to see well maybe or maybe not you know, right, it depends right. on what has been done to that unit in the past. It depends on the seed bank. It depends on a whole lot of things. So you, you, it's that's that's one of the coolest things about it is, and it's also a frustrating part about it, right? Because you're expecting <laughs> yeah. something, yeah. and you may not get it. I'm like, dang, this didn't work, you know. And then yeah. it's frustrating, but it's a learning experience. Every time we do, every time we apply a prescription to a piece of property, it's a learning experience. We're going to mm-hmm. learn something from that. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, from one year to the next, you're going to have those variances and, and the way the seed bank is going to respond. And um, that, that could be thought of as negative, but I think it's a positive because, again, there's there's some diversity across the property that you maybe weren't expecting. Maybe, maybe it turns out better than what you wanted or maybe addresses a, a need of um, a limited resource better than what you thought. You just yeah. you you just don't know exactly what that expression is. It, it's a little bit of a roll of the dice, but but again, going back to the the principle of it, we know prescribed fire is good, and we know generally speaking, when we do dormant versus growing season fire, to what's going to happen, and and there's again a variance, uh, a spectrum in which that response is most likely going to act or respond to or within, I guess is the right terms. It's going to respond mm-hmm. within this kind of parameter. Um, it's going to favor forbs or it's going to favor grasses or it's going to help control or top kill um, more of your saplings, whatever the case may be. 
we know it's probably going to fit within this, but but again, there there's a little bit of, of variances, um, and and that's fun. That's fun to see, but yeah, it's just was, not cookie cutter. Yeah, right. It, it, you it's, know. it's not math. Like when you when you have a math equation, you yep. have two things, and there's variables in math, right? But like mm-hmm. you you, it spits out a number, an exact answer. That's not land management. If you're looking for that in land management, you're not. You're going to be disappointed. Yeah, <laughs> so let's just let's just scratch yes. that, remove that off the table. It's not like if I plant soybeans in my food plot at 80 pounds an acre, do it at the right times, apply the right herbicide, remove my weeds, do it this and that, I will have bean pods to hunt over. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Right. Can't can't guarantee it. Cannot can't guarantee, guarantee it. it. Right. But right. Again, like to me, it's it's a part of that, and and I know that you're there too, and you're you're understanding, Adam, Kyle. This is what we really try and preach. It's like it's almost refreshing because as many things that we do or have done, let's say as a as human beings on planet on the planet, it's a good thing that we just don't have the the say of like. Oh, I'm going to do this, and this is going to be the response. Like nature and creation works in its system, and we just need to learn the system and then embrace it. And all those mm-hmm. principles that we know will follow suit. It's going to happen. We just yeah. need to we just need to figure those things out in yeah. your given region. Yeah, you're right. You know, and and to kind of to segue to to the next topic based on that, um, you know, the last thing you said was in your given region. Um, that is that is that is a huge part of of what I want to talk about in terms of the quail decline. Mm-hmm. We know that um, bobwhite quail declined over eighty percent across their range. You know, from from east to west. Part the western part of the range hasn't declined as much, but it certainly has declined. But one of the things you cannot say with any sort of um, certainty is that the mechanism behind or the dynamics behind that decline are the same across the country. Yeah. Absolutely can't say that. Correct. And and that is what you must understand. The, the reason why your local population declined, if you expect to turn that around and try to make your local population increase. Mm-hmm. You've got to figure out why it declined in the first place before you can before you can turn that situation around and, and that's what i want to talk about um here is that 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 the the changes across the country and the reasons why quail decline are different so let's take where, where we're at in, yeah. in the southwest part of missouri so basically the fescue belt which is probably from the flint hills the eastern side of the flint hills in kansas through about um Western Kentucky and Tennessee, all, maybe all the way to, to, to the Eastern Kentucky oh, sure. and Tennessee, sort of this fescue belt. Um, you know, our forage for, for cattle and, and as a result, the early successional habitats are our open lands are dominated by tall fescue, in some cases Bermuda grass, but dominated by tall fescue. And that has just eliminated the early successional habitat for bobwhite quail. That is the number one factor driving our quail population down here in this part of Missouri and probably most of Missouri, mm-hmm. Arkansas, eastern Kansas, eastern Oklahoma, you know, and sort of that fescue belt that we talk about is the predominance of fescue. That has eliminated forbs. That's eliminated bare ground. It's eliminated the early successional usable space, the shrubs. There's no shrubs in these fescue fields. Um, it's it's a this is the the land use of, of of going primarily to a fescue based forage system is really is what caused our quail decline. Mm-hmm. But that's not what has caused the quail decline in Iowa and Nebraska and Illinois. Right. That is large scale conversion to crop such that there is no there's very very little early successional habitat grasses and forbs because most of that which was tall grass prairie in the past has been converted to crops yeah. and there's, there's very little space for early successional habitat because it's largely farmed fence to fence in these extensive ag, ag operations. But if you look at the Southeast, a lot of what's driving their quail decline 
is the removal of fire. They're in more of a woodland system where historically fires kept open savannas and woodlands. So these mm-hmm. long, long leaf savannas or even short leaf pine savannas that had a really or lush herbaceous understory. Well, lack of fire and converting to sort of pine plantations where fire is not a part of the system is what's largely causing that quail decline. So three different regions still seeing quail declines, but three different mechanisms and dynamics that are resulting in that decline. So it's important to to realize that that there's different there's different dynamics operating on this one tiny bird to cause it to decline. And you've got to figure out where you sit in the landscape to figure out how you can change it. And and there's a lot of overlap of those, like even within those regions of fire, of herbicide, of crops, of pasture land. You know, those are those are general, um, you know, reasons why across those those let's say given regions that you described. But mm-hmm. I, I think. Mike Chamberlain, and I'm applying what a phrase that he said to regarding wild turkeys, but again can be applied to probably Bob White's and just their their fragile state. It's a it's a death by a thousand cuts, and and as a as a total population, there's many many different reasons as to why they do it. But in what you're saying is, hey, in these regions, this is the driving factor. This mm-hmm. is the this is the majority the lion's share of the decline in these given regions of what's happened, what's been occurring. And as a result of that, quail numbers are going down mm-hmm. quickly, unfortunately. But you know what? That's right. Is it, it's, it's refreshing to me from a standpoint of, you know, when we look at the tools that, um, are part of part of the decline, if you will. I'm going to say this kind of broadly, um, but when you look at some of the, the tools that land managers have access to um, and, and use to um, manage the landscape with, so cattle, so that's bringing like you know the fescue side of things, mm-hmm. um, herbicides, which is bringing in you know back into the pasture. A lot of people are. You know, spraying pastures routinely just to get a grass, just get grass, just get grass. Forbes bad, mm-hmm. Forbes, anything broadleaf they don't want in their in their uh, pastures. Um, minus minus some clover, but there's so much clover out there that pops and comes just about every single year, even when you're spraying broadleafs. Mm-hmm. Then you've got um, the disc, you know, from from crop fields, and then you've got. Um, the lack of fire in many of these places and the axe, um, so timbering, logging, um, all those different things. Those are five different tools that in all those regions you talked about have played a role in the decline. But you know the craziest thing about it is what would we use to bring quail back? Those same five different tools in That's each right. of those regions. It's 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 not that... If you will, it's a mismanagement of given tools that have declined habitat quality, mm-hmm. and or, and or removed just habitat in general. Either some place you go to and you're like, there just ain't nothing here. Like there's no habitat. But yeah. but the cool thing is the same the same things. If we just use those tools wisely and appropriately, we can help increase quail. That's it's right. like this weird dynamic that I, I don't think people grasp. It's almost like, oh, you've got to be on one side or the other, either you know, pro herbicide or you hate it, or or pro logging or you hate it. Good mm-hmm. prescribed buyers, good or bad, cows are good or bad. No, it's not. They're all good in their own realm and put to use wisely. They're all great tools. That's that's exactly right. That's absolutely right. We can we can use those same tools. I think Leopold had a had a yeah. A quote about uh-huh. that. There's uh-huh. something about the the these these tools that have caused the wildlife decline are the same tools that can that can turn it around and cause them to come back. And and you know it that prescribed fires is a great a great example of that. You know we we need to we need or or, or logging is a great example for that. You know logging is is not bad, um, and tree removal is, is is provides excellent excellent wildlife habitat mm-hmm. 
but it could also cause a complete destruction of wildlife habitat where you have these huge clear cuts that that are a temporary you know loss of wildlife habitat now it quickly recovers and whatnot mm-hmm. but you know there's you're right about this about these dynamic these mechanisms you know they're on a spectrum and we really when we need to realize that is 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 all of this land management stuff falls on a spectrum and how we use it yeah. um depends on where we use it in that in that spectrum grazing is a great example we have most of our tall fescue is is too heavily grazed it is it is too beat down there's very very little habitat for grassland birds but we also have a lot of our prairie landscapes or our expiring crps mm-hmm. p areas that are too thick for right. grassland habit for grassland songbirds bobwhite quail pheasants things like that but we can utilize grazing to get that landscape back into the condition we want <clears throat> so the tool that is that is that is being used in a way that's that's causing wildlife habitat to decline on fescue can be used in a way to to create abundant quail numbers in tall grass prairies or, or in expiring CRPs. The the tool itself is not bad. Cattle are not bad. Correct. Cattle, the application of it or, or how it's used is is what is going to be driving the way our land is managed. And so that's something we, you know, we, we need to keep that in mind, you know, that uh, these blanket, you know, grazing is bad, grazing is bad. Well, no, it's not. And, and it's it, inherently it's not. It's how it's applied can be viewed as good or bad based based on how you how you view it mm-hmm. um, and, and so you know that's where it's important to to understand where you are in the, in the landscape and to understand what's what's caused the the decline and and you mentioned that um there there are there could be compounding factors or there could be multiple factors and i'll sure. give you a really great example of that is where where i grew up hunting in southwest missouri largely our, our decline in quail is is based on the the fescue the the abundance of fescue mm-hmm. and and, the, and the, the fescue grazing culture and, and and the abundance of it around here. But when I go back and look at the lands that I grew up hunting, um, most of those have lost their quail because the landowners had allowed it to grow up into early successional woodland. And then eventually to closed canopy woodland and forest over the years. Yeah. When I was hunting it, it was still broom sedge grass, ragweed, scattered clumps of plum. There were some oak sprouts coming in. You know, you could tell that, you know, it was kind of on the verge from, you know, going into a woodland, but there were still quail around. And then when I revisited these areas 20 years later, you know, they were woodcock and then, and then, you know, Woodcock habitat and then closed canopy forest. So in a fescue landscape, yes, the quail populations were are being driven by fescue, but those local populations declined because of a lack of management on those early successional habitats and they succeeded into forest. Right. So you're right, is there could be multiple things working on a local population that is causing problems. It it's it's just dynamic. Like yeah. there there's there's not a clear cut reason answer for everything. And and I think again that that's just like the almost human nature of we just try and apply uh simplicity to some of some complex answers, you know, the predators and prey. That is so complex. Oh, you can't yeah. you can't even begin to say, "Oh, this is good, that's bad." No, that that that's a Honestly, it's just an ignorant statement, and 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 saying that again, like the the, the cattle uh, example, cattle are bad for wildlife. No, that's an ignorant statement. It, it is highly right. variable, dependent upon the forages, how they're grazing, how they're being grazed, what they're grazing itself, and and the density. I mean, we could go on and on and on about the yeah. the, the the dynamics of um, grazing as a tool, but cows are not bad for wildlife right right yeah it's you know you've got to you've got to 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 have an open mind about all this and 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 not be closed off and and i will admit when i first you know started you know doing wildlife management work and coming in and and from college and and you know as an early professional 
you have biases mm -hmm. and you have things that you believe are absolutes. And that, that is absolutely wrong. You right, shouldn't right. go in, you're, you're going to naturally go into these things at, you know, with, with your inherent biases. But as, as what I've learned, and I see it with younger professionals that are, that are getting into it, you know, they have their biases, they have things that they believe are absolutes, but you quickly learn that there aren't absolutes in yeah. in this in this world that we're in there there aren't things that 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 are absolute and um but people still do hold their biases i've dealt with people that absolutely believe that cattle are bad for wildlife and bad for the landscape because of the thing that they are most interested in would be something that maybe cattle would, would harm in the short term. And no matter of, of convincing them will, or no matter of talking to them or debating them, will get them to change their mind. And those sure. people are, are ones that are unreasonable. And, and, and you know, you're probably not going to change your mind anyway. Sure. Um, yeah. And, and that's not a good, that's not a good way to, to, to go about this is it's, it's important to have an open mind. There are some things that we have found out in our quail study that Kyle and I found out that have completely changed how we manage quail based on what we found on this quail study. If we, sure. if we hadn't have done this, we would think absolutely that the peak of quail hatch is June 15th. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not. And so that is an absolute that we have, you know, that, that we have had to, to let go of and, and advice that we had to let go of based on what, what the data is showing us. And I think that's, that is important. You've got to, you've got to approach this with an open mind, be willing to learn, be willing to adapt and, you're going to be a lot more successful if you do that. Well, I think yeah. that's a, a really important um, thing, and I was go I was going to uh, share that as well. And I, I don't know if that's a bold statement or whatever, but um, I would say the de the degree of how open your mind is, there's a strong correlation to the success that you'll have as a land manager when yep. managing for improved either wildlife populations what have you yep if you oh. have a closed mind you will you're limiting your success and growth and the land's growth which i think we all owe it uh there there is a, a land ethic out there um that we should all be striving to improve and, and work um work to i guess just simply improve the land itself but if you have a closed mind when it comes to land management practices and the tools that we have access to, you are the limiting factor. It's not the land itself. It's it's your willingness to um, be creative, try different things, have an open mind to yep. new research, change your ways. That's the limiting factor. It, it's not the land. Restoration, we, we, we've seen it. Um, I, know, I know you have, Frank, just incredible restoration examples across the country of of land you're like wow I did, I did not think we'd get that um expression back i i didn't know if that was that land was too far gone or what mm -hmm. it happens it'll come back yeah. we can do it but we just have got to be flexible and open-minded yeah. with it all yep yeah. you know and a good example of that was sort of what we talked about when we opened the podcast when we gave the example of the landowner that had was seeing good numbers of quail this year in his brood patches. When mm -hmm. I think when we approached him with the idea of, hey, you've got some native warm season grass here that you planted, let's go in and kill it all, spray it, disc it up. I, you know, I think he may have wanted to throw us off his property there at first <laughs> because, like, what do you mean? I'm killing pheasants out of here. I'm killing big deer. But to his great credit, he was open minded to yes. understand the science and see. You know, yeah, these juvenile quail, these juvenile pheasants need lots of early successional forbs. They need lots of bare ground. This tall grass isn't doing them any good at that stage. I need to add more of that. And my quail and my deer are going to benefit because there's going to be so much more forage mm -hmm. for them to access that, hey, I'm going to give it a try. And so he was open-minded and he did it. And I think he's pretty excited about what he's seeing. And that was a great example of, of being taking some of these dogmas that that you truly believe and and you know throwing them out as as dogmas is what they are and then trying something new and there's a lot of that and there could be a whole nother podcast example of 
all this dogma and, and wildlife mm-hmm. science and wildlife management that, you know, people have have believed and practiced and that, that hold on to very, very strongly that that probably have really have no place in wildlife management or wildlife science anymore. I, I think but a lot yeah. of people are invested in it because maybe they had a hand in developing that dogma or they just you know, ego gets in the way, whatever mm-hmm, it is, mm-hmm. uh, or they had success one time, you know, yep. but if we're really going to be, we're really going to change the game for, for the species that, that we're most interested in, we're going to have to give up some of these previously held beliefs that just aren't working anymore. And, and, you know, and, and, and adapt. Yes. I, I totally agree on that. Uh, and, and to unpack that a little bit more, uh, of that landowner that we had visited with, God, I think you have to take into context that that perspective that that he has grown up in in that region. Um, yep. It is a very heavy dominated crop area, also very heavy CRP, and mm-hmm. the, the the type of cover that exists outside of CRP, small little woodlots or creek drainages, and we're talking small, we're talking very small. Fo- uh, uh, percentage of the landscape out there in this region, I would say easy less than 10% um, would be of woody type cover. So what the the gentleman was experiencing when it comes to success from years past in harvesting both pheasants and quail was primarily in CRP. So mm-hmm. very heavy grass areas. So here's a gentleman who had come to see his success was was dependent upon very grass-heavy areas, uh, 90% grass, essentially, in many of these places, many of these farms or, or, or acres. And um, now we come in and say, hey, one of the issues is the grass. There's too much of it. I, I mean, put yourself in his shoes. You know, yeah. Again, he, he, here's a, an area where cover's relatively limited, his only success in hunting is focused in and around these areas of cover. Now these two guys from southwest Missouri come and say, hey, one of the issues is the cover. It's the wrong cover or the wrong composition of cover. That would that would set a lot of people their, you know, back on their heels and say, yes. whoa, whoa, whoa. I, hey, guys, you know, this is, uh, if you will, I make a living on, on killing the birds in these areas. And you're telling yep. me that it's not good? Well, this is the best that it, that there is in the neighborhood. And I think that that's another, if you will, dogma of people saying, hey, I know that farm over there, it's good, but you're telling me that it, it can be improved or it should be improved? Well, research and science tells us that even though he's being really successful in killing birds on that, you know, 160 acres of CRP, that doesn't mean it can't be better. And we're in the process on that property specifically, making it better. And that text update was a very good indicator that removing some of the grass in multiple different ways, whether it was dormant season disking, I think this year he's going to be trying um, and utilizing some herbicide applications Mm -hmm. to remove the Mm -hmm. grass specifically, burning at different rotations. He will see that increase. And I'm I'm 100% confident in that. But again, we went to a region where if you will, he was one of the top players in, when it comes to rearing birds and killing them, um, bringing yep. guests in, having great success. But that great success is only going to go up, you know, exponentially with these other practices. So if you're if you're in an area and you're saying, man, I I kill the biggest, the best deer, or I've got the most turkeys, this and that. Well, again, that is fantastic, but that doesn't mean that it can't be better or that it shouldn't be improved or shouldn't be addressed. There's still most likely weaknesses mm-hmm. in that habitat that need to be addressed and be improved. And I think that sometimes we get caught up in like the, Oh, well in, in my region, this is, this is the, the best of the top caliber. I mean, how do we know that you can't, right. you can't go around and measure. There's no gauge uh, to, to measure the, the potential necessarily of, of a given track or a given individual within a population, you can't do that. And so mm-hmm. I think, I think just in, in that realm of, Hey, even though you, you may 
believe you bought into a good neighborhood or a good region, man, if if you're settling for what that that region tells you is good, you're probably selling that area short because the habitat in most places just isn't isn't top isn't isn't the right composition we talked about the grasses and forbs isn't the right composition for every species that you're trying to promote on a property Mm -hmm. so that in itself is a dogma of i know i'm doing good stuff but man it probably probably we're here to say it probably can be better yes it can be it it can be and and you know the the cool thing about it is is um you know research and wildlife science is critically important and i and i support it we need to do more of it but by and large we we have the broad we we broadly know the tools that will work has Mm -hmm. repeated to work has been proven to work across the country based on where you're at now you may have to try something different in oklahoma versus what you're going to do in southern iowa in terms of you know how much woody cover you provide perhaps you need more in southern iowa than you do in west oklahoma yeah and, and, and those regional differences are important, but broadly we know what's going to work to bring back quail, pheasant, deer to improve our deer forage, our deer, mm-hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, our deer sex composition, age composition, whatever it may be. Um, so we've, you know, that's that's we are in a great time in history, and that we are not back in the 40s and 50s still trying to you know, sort this stuff out, still mm-hmm. trying to figure this stuff out. We're in a good place in history. And, and again, I, I, I say that with a caveat, if we continue to need to do research, particularly on things that we don't quite understand, you know, with the turkey decline, we don't quite understand that to the level that we need to. Yeah. We need to continue to approach that with good research. But the point is, is we are a great, we're in a great place that, that we, we sort of know where to go and, and, and know what is going to work um and and that sort of to bring that back to the overarching topic of this podcast is even though we know what's going to work we know the principles behind what's going to what's going to restore populations in our specific land or in our specific region those may need to be applied differently or certainly will need to be applied differently depending on where we're at in the country. So this cookie-cutter approach will not work. So prescribed fire will work from Texas, West Texas, all the way to to Georgia. But the timing, application, you know, the, the, the return interval, all that's different. All that's dynamic um, depending on where you're at. And it's important to know where you're at in the landscape, where you're at in the world, uh, how you're going to do that. And one of those things we talked about is is um, shrubby cover. Quail are often called a shrub obligate species um, because they have to have shrubby cover. Well, the amount of shrubby cover that they need in southwest Missouri um, is different than what, what they need in north Missouri. So mm-hmm. even within the same state, it differs. We can get away so there's there's been research that shows that, that bob whites can do well anywhere from five to twenty five percent woody cover on the landscape, but they're going to do better in say southern Iowa if you're on that higher end of the of that spectrum because you have so much you have the potential to have so much more colder weather and so much more heavy snow than we do in in, in South Missouri that your shrubby cover component. And, and, and composition and distribution across the landscape can be somewhat less here in our part of the state versus northern Missouri. So oh, totally. um, those those are important things to remember. And that when you're looking at research and you're looking at social media posts across the country, you need to take that with a grain of salt and think, okay, how, yes, that works, but how is that going to work where I'm at? Do I need to put plant as many plum thickets on my land as they're doing in Nebraska? Do I need nope. to burn as often on my land as they are in Southwest Missouri? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. And that's where um, contacting folks like us to give a better idea um, of you know folks that have done it, have yeah. had the experience that have yep. done it year after year and actually put it in on the ground over multiple seasons um, can, can sort of really cut that learning curve way down. I think I think that's exactly 
what it comes down to is just navigating and troubleshooting, foreseeing the future, and removing the the learning curve for someone to be able to execute these types of disturbances and at the right rate, the right interval, having the right composition of plant communities out there on the landscape for the species that they want. So like you're just, you know, specifically talking quail there. And I know someone's probably out there like, well, you know, that's, that's quail guys. They're, they're very fragile, but I'm literally this morning been working on a property, um, uh, who his main focus is white tailed deer out of central Mississippi. Um, the property's got both quite a bit of hardwoods, um, varying ages of pine plantations, and just in pine plantations, we're ha- we're talking extreme variances in um, the basal area that these places are going to be cut to, um, mm-hmm. and then we're going to be managing the the hardwood areas and vastly different um, uh, basal areas as well, and doing medium TSI. Some areas could be clear cut, some are going to be very open. But what that response is going to then give us is a completely different understory in all those regions or all those areas across the farm. And then at that point, we're still going to be managing, even if it's a um, 20 basal area on some of these pines, well, we might have some areas that we're burning every other year and then some mm-hmm. that were burning every four years so mm-hmm. even within those same stands within the same amount of light that those places are getting we're going to dictate that res- vegetation response underneath of those um overstory pines by the fire so we're creating the right. different habitats so like even in like, it's just not like okay hardwoods you do this well <laughs> we're going to be cutting them differently and then we're going to be burning them differently too and then mm-hmm. in the pines, we're going to be doing the exact same thing. There are different stages, but the end result is I want this to be at that that um, basal area and then burned on that rotation. And then this one over here at this basal area and then burned on this rotation. So now we've got the diversity across the whole property. But you look at the amount of growing season that central Mississippi has versus southern Iowa, you're probably talking 45, 60 days at least yeah. longer in a growing season. So the burn rate or the interval is going to be, of course, much less. We're talking month and a half, two months easy of difference in growing seasons. Right. So you think about like the first couple weeks of uh, the first month and a half of of a growing season in your general area. How much green up occurs there? Now now extrapolate that out across the whole growing season. Yeah, we're going to have big changes and big differences from that landscape in southern Iowa versus landscape in central Mississippi and and how we need to manage it for the species, the composition, the plant communities, and the distribution of of that across an entire site. Yeah. Changes. That's right. And that can be daunting and that can be overwhelming. And as a, as a, as a landowner that is, that is, that may be, you know, an electrician or an engineer or whatever, Mm -hmm that has just got a piece of ground that is some daunting stuff. And it, where do I start? You know, and, sure. and, and they wouldn't know the dynamics behind um, when to burn different stands or what are, what my soil types are across the, across my farm. We did that one consult in, in Southern or yeah, Southeastern Oklahoma that had different soil types and different uh slope exposures across the landscape and so the management was going to be different even on that same property yes even within maybe the same chunk of that property you have glade type which transition into woodland which maybe transition into savannah you know that that is some stuff that that can be daunting and 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 maybe your average landowner that that's never that hasn't spent a lifetime studying wildlife science understands that and that's where i think the services that we provide are, are so valuable in that we have spent our lives trying to figure this stuff out and can write a prescription and, and, and can, can guide you through it step by step. It's yeah. not just a once, here's your plan, you know, see you later. No, it's mm-hmm. nothing like, I mean, it's, it's constant updates. It's, you know, it's how you guys doing. And, it's, you know, it's texting back and forth, sending pictures. It's, it's really a, a guide yeah. uh, such that I wouldn't know the first thing about, you know, building my house, uh, you know, and I wouldn't expect a, maybe a, a general contractor to know 
as much about wildlife science as maybe you and me. So sure. that's I think where 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 we can come in and really cause that learning curve to be to be much less daunting and, and, and much less overwhelming and really and really line it out so that we can set these dynamics up to where it's ah, this is understandable. The light bulb comes on. I understand this now. Yeah. You know, because we're you know, we're we're laying it out. I think that's 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 the importance of these sort of these services that that, that we provide. Definitely. I I think with, without a doubt and just to just to recap is there's no cookie cutter. There you you, you just can't use um the same techniques everywhere you go in the same oh, wow. way and to manage different varying species. And, and the, you know, the other thing cool, uh, Frank, that I, that I really like and, and enjoy as, as many different places as if just you and I have been or, or land and legacy in general, every landowner in that region though, too, has slightly different goals. Yes. And that's the cool part is, is yes. kind of getting to the root of, you know, what is it that, that you want this property to accomplish and, and be like? And what kind of experiences and memories do you want to have here? Because that's then going to dictate also what it is we do, how we do it. And um, But it's fun to go like, all right, well, here's your roadmap. Here's how you go. Go create. Go make those memories. Have fun. Experience and keep us updated along the way. Yep. Absolutely. I, I enjoy I enjoy that. It, it's, it's, a, it's the variety and that, that makes our jobs so fun is to determine what the goals that they want. And then using, we can sit down and use our heads like, okay, this is what he wants. Mm -hmm. How can we make this happen? And that, that takes brain power. That takes experience. That takes, you know, a level of, 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 you know, understanding what the landscape looks like. And that's fun is trying to put that whole puzzle together. And that whole plan is, is really challenging and it's and it's very enjoyable to me i yeah. enjoy that part of it absolutely well frank i really appreciate your time coming on and absolutely um, you know that this this podcast i think was definitely a good timely one for um everyone going into fall and going into let's say a little bit more of a hunting season time frame yeah but um, yeah. it's never too early let's say to begin thinking about what those next year plans are you know what 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 does the next growing season kind of have in store for me? How am I going to be applying all these different techniques across my property? Do I need further assistance um, or, or, or am I tackling this on my own? So um, it keeps those wheels turning in, in the, the minds of all those who are listening. And we appreciate everyone who does listen every single week. It, it's such a joy to we'll get those responses back. And um, but Frank, I, I certainly appreciate your time coming on. You bet. You bet. Thanks, Matt. And um, I, I always enjoy talking with you. This this kind of went off on a couple of tangents, but that's what I think <laughs> makes this this so fun. I is, think so. Is we, you know, we can get off on a tangent and, and, and discuss things that maybe we hadn't talked about, but that's that's cool. Yeah. Enjoy that. Absolutely, sir. Sounds good. I always enjoy those conversations with Frank. He is... Um, He's got such a, a creative mind and and so much knowledge revolving around land management, specifically um, extensive knowledge on quail. But um, him and, and Frank, um, Frank and Kyle both, excuse me, are just extremely knowledgeable about just wild game populations, restoring native vegetation and plant communities, and the spatial aspect of those features across a landscape, they got it. They know it. And so just starting a conversation, hit the record button on a podcast gear, um, and just kind of seeing where it takes us. I just enjoy that. And I hope you guys do too. Um, we appreciate you guys listening. Be sure to head over to social media pages, Facebook and Instagram, as well as YouTube. There are some consistent video dropping throughout the summer and spring Certainly as we go into the fall as well, about different uh, habitat techniques, hunts that we've had. And um, so if you guys want kind of a first-hand look and observation of all the different techniques we've been using, we recommend, um, and some of the products of those techniques, be sure to go to YouTube, check it out, subscribe to the page, and um, we certainly appreciate you guys' support there. Um, and be sure as you're out there searching the web, that you go to GoStrattonSeed.com. That is GoStrattonSeed.com. 
Check out all their blends. Check out a great company. Been around since 1940s. They are heavy hitters when it comes to the commodity crop side and are now putting a huge footprint into the food plot side of things. Awesome wildlife blends. And they have just been open-minded and working with us and, and trying different species and testing. And, and um, man, it's just been a, a joy to work with them. So if you guys are interested in their blends and learning about the company, definitely go check out GoStrattonSeed.com. And if you don't have a dealer near you, and there's a dealer page on their webpage, so you can check out if there is someone local. But if not... Then go to Shop Plan Legacy and order some online. Work up some shipping and send it out your way. But um, guys, we appreciate it. Appreciate you listening. And um, whatever you're going out to do this fall, maybe this weekend, in preparation for fall, have fun. Enjoy it. And um, share some of the success stories with us. We'd love to to be able to hear from you guys, whether it's through info at TV or if it comes through social media channels, through messaging. Guys, we appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Yeah.